chapter full. We're going to look at Galatians 3, verse 19, down to the end of the chapter, to verse 29. And this is part two of the law and the gospel distinctives. We come to the question in verse, in verse 19 of the Apostle Paul. He's highlighted, we saw last week, two covenants under the Old Testament. The covenant with Abraham that was one of promise, that through the offspring, singular, of Abraham, there will be this Savior that will come and redeem his people from their sins. And 430 years later, the Mosaic Law would come to the people of Israel, and Paul's argument is that the Mosaic Law did not add to the promised Christ given to Abraham. It did not subtract from that promise, it did not modify that promise, but it was a distinct covenant from that which was given to Abraham. And the, the question is now, well, if salvation's by faith alone through the promise, Christ alone, then why the law? And even as believers, we have that question. Well, what is, what is the law? There seems to be this mystery in the church about the function of the law. What is the purpose of the law? How does it fit within the Old Testament? How does it fit within the New Testament? How does it relate to Jesus Christ and all that he's done? That's the answer that Paul will show us. He'll show us an answer to that question in verse 19 of Galatians 3, all the way down to the end of the chapter. So we come to that question in verse 19. If you look there in Galatians 3, why then the law? If salvation's by grace alone, through faith alone, in the promised Christ alone, well, why did God have to give the Mosaic law 430 years later? And what Paul's going to show us is that the Mosaic law has a moral aspect, and it has a ceremonial aspect, and it has a civil aspect, and the threefold aspect of the law has a threefold function under the Old Covenant with the people of Israel to do something to them. And I want us to see three things that the Mosaic Law was uh, fashioned by God for a specific purpose, and it was first to increase transgression. We'll see that in the text. It also came to imprison sinners and hold them captive, and then it also drove sinners to Christ. So let's see that in the text. Why then the law? Look at verse 19 and verse 20. Here's the first purpose of the Mosaic law given to the nation Israel in the Old Testament. Paul writes in verse 19, why then the law? Here's the first function. The Mosaic law, it was added. God made this covenant with Israel, this Mosaic law, 430 years after the promise given to Abraham of Christ. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, until Jesus Christ should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in the place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. What does it mean that the law was added because of transgression? You could flip it uh, and use a different terminology here. Transgression also means sin, iniquity. So God, 430 years later, after he came to Abraham by grace and made this promise of the Messiah to come, he added the Mosaic law because of transgression, because of sin. 
One commentator says that God wanted to accent the sinfulness of man, and he wanted to make the nation of Israel painfully aware of their sinfulness and their fatal condition. That's one function of the Mosaic Law, to show the people of Israel that the Messiah was given to, to show them their sinfulness, to show them their fatal condition, to show them that there's an accent on their sinfulness, that they actually need a Savior. They're not okay on their own. They cannot keep the covenants that God has made with them and all the obligations and all the stipulations. They cannot fulfill the law's demands, and it highlights their sinfulness. It highlights how far the people of Israel in this context have fallen short. Now look at, look at verse 19 and verse 20 again. It says that the Mosaic law was added for transgressions because of transgressions. And Paul says, well, it was added by an intermediary. Or you could look at it as a mediator. And if you think of the two covenants that we've been looking at, the covenant with Abraham did not have a mediator administering that covenant. God came to Abraham directly. And he made this promise of salvation. So you can see the, the Abrahamic covenant is fundamentally different than the Mosaic covenant. When God established this covenant with Moses, well, it was through an intermediary. God came to Moses on Mount Sinai, and Moses was that mediator, uh, mediator with the people of Israel, and he was to take that Mosaic law and institute it among the nation of Israel. That's what Paul's saying here, that this Mosaic covenant that was made because of transgressions, well, it had a mediator. It had a man, the man Moses, carried along by angels, Paul says, to establish this Mosaic law. And look at verse 20. He says an intermediary implies more than one, but he says God is one. Now, what is Paul doing here? Well, he's making this contrast with the promise to Abraham and the Mosaic law. He says the promise to Abraham is based on the fact that God is one. This mediator through the Mosaic law, a mediator implies more than one, but this promise, it implies this unity. God is one. And what I want you to notice first, if you look down at verse 26 to verse 29, Paul will go back after he shows us what the law was designed to do, he'll go speak on this oneness. Because God is one, the promised Christ, he, he unites multitudes of sinners from various backgrounds and various tribes and makes them one in Christ because God is one. Christ and his promise, it unites sinners from every background. But the Mosaic law was for a specific people. It didn't, it didn't unite all the nations, but it was for the nation Israel. But this gospel promise is for all peoples. Look at verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. There's that promise. The promise of Christ received by faith. And verse 27 says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, that's not speaking about water baptism, but the, the Holy Spirit's work of, of regeneration, uniting you, baptizing you into Jesus Christ by faith alone, this vital union. 
as many as were baptized, united, regenerated, and brought into Christ, have put on Christ. Here's what God, who is one, has done through the gospel. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. No, those are two people groups that are radically different. A Jew and a Greek. A Jew and a dog. They were seen as the Gentiles. Filthy, unclean. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So he begins with the promise in chapter 3, then he goes to the function of the law, and he shows us that this Mosaic law, it can't unite like the gospel does. The gospel unites one people in Christ, but the Mosaic law was given, verse 19 back there, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary, by Moses, fundamentally different. Now the question is, okay, I, I understand that it was through the mediation of Moses, established by God. Well, why was it put in place? That word transgression means to expose their sin. Now if you look at uh, Hebrews 9, verse 22, let's just seek to understand how the Mosaic law, the ceremonial law, the civil law, the moral law, how does it increase transgression? How does, it, how does it point out the sinfulness of the people of Israel? Well, this was God's function. Look at Hebrews 9, verse 22. This is the function of the ceremonial law. And I want you to see how it shows the sinfulness of the people of Israel under the Old Covenant. Hebrews 9, verse 22. Indeed, under the law... The Mosaic law, the, the ceremonial law in this context, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And look at this without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And we see throughout the, the Bible that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away our sins. And that is the function of the ceremonial law. It shows us that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So when you take that into account of what Paul's saying, the law increases our transgression. Well, even the people of Israel should have looked at the ceremonial law, and they should have seen sacrifice after sacrifice, year after year, blood being shed, and still there is never a full atonement for sin. Still there was this longing that the ceremonial law should have pointed the people of Israel to that nothing but the blood of a perfect sacrificial lamb can take away your sins. The people of Israel should have seen that they have infinite sins against, against God. And they need this perfect lamb of God to atone, to wash away their sins. It increased their sinfulness. What did the civil law do? Well, I won't have you turn there, but later you can look at Deuteronomy chapter 17. And God establishes how a king should function in Israel. And if you look at all the qualifications of a king in Israel, under the Mosaic law, the civil law, he was to be a man governed by the word of God. He was to be that man in Psalm 1 
the blessed man who meditated on the word of God day and night. And if you look at God's qualifications, the king was not to turn from the left of God's word or to the right of God's word, but God's word was to govern his mind, his heart, his soul. The law of God and the word of God was to govern all his policy and all of that. He was not to be puffed up, not to take many wives, all these things. You can look at all of God's qualifications. And as you look at the old covenant, King David, this, this promised king, 2 Samuel 7, this Davidic king, is that going to be the king that's going to fully obey the law of God and bring the people of God into ultimate blessing? Well, no, we see David committed adultery, and he committed murder. And you have this promise of one after David, one of David's offspring, that will be a Davidic king with a kingdom that is without end and will always sit on his throne. And you get a Solomon. And Solomon, he, he disqualified himself in that sense. He had many wives and all of that. A king of Israel was not to do that in Deuteronomy 17. So not only did the ceremonial law increase their transgressions and have them longing for a perfect sacrifice, but it also, in the civil sense, gave them a longing for a perfect leader, one who, who leads them in paths of righteousness, one who leads them through the valley of the shadow of death, one who leads them through death and into the true promised land where, where there's eternal glory. And we see the Messiah that's promised. He'll take that threefold office. He'll be a prophet, he'll be a, the perfect priest, and he'll be the perfect king. The ceremonial law, the civil law, finally the moral law. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, that also increases our transgression. If you measure yourself up against that, well, we see that even if we try to fulfill one command, well, we've fallen short. We've, we've broken God's law. We're a transgressor, a, one who's lawless in God's sight. That's the function of the moral law. And Jesus said the law, the moral law summarized in this, the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself? Well, the people of Israel should have saw that they cannot fulfill even the moral law. Not the ceremonial, not the civil, not the moral. And what should that have produced in them? A longing for one, a, a mediator that's greater than Moses, that perfectly walks in obedience to the moral law of God as well, who, who loved the Father with all his heart for all of his life, who loved his neighbor as himself. That's what the law is pointing forward to, the first aspect. It increases our sinfulness, and it drives us to Jesus Christ. Now, most all of us aren't Jews here, and the question is, well, does the law, why then the law for, for Gentiles, or does the law of God have no function in, in that it increases transgression for the Jews, but, but not for us. Are we off the hook as Gentiles? Well, look at Romans 3 for a moment as we seek to understand why then the law, why, why was it given to, to the Jew to increase transgression? But the Apostle Paul in Romans shows us that even Gentile sinners have the law, the moral law, written on our hearts, in our conscience, and it has this function also of increasing our transgression, showing our sinfulness. Look at Romans 3, verse 19. 
And look at Paul's terminology. Romans 3.19, he's writing to both Jew and Gentile in the church at Rome. And Paul writes in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And you could stop there and say, okay, in this context, who is Paul referring to? Is he strictly speaking about Jews alone? Look, he goes on to say, the law, it speaks to those who are under the law. And who's under the law in this sense? So that every mouth, so he doesn't say just the mouth of the Jews, but every mouth, every mouth may be stopped by the law. And look at this, the whole world may be accountable to God. It's clear as day that, that the moral law in this aspect, also for Gentile sinners, you and I, it stops our mouth before God. It, it holds the whole world, everyone born in this world as image bearers, accountable to God. We've violated the King of Heaven's commands. Verse 20, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. That is, made right, free of guilt in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We see the function of the law. It gives a knowledge of sin. Look at verse 21 to verse 23 of Romans 3. Paul doesn't stop with the law, but the law gives a knowledge of sin. And we'll see in a moment back in Galatians, it drives us to someone. Verse 21 of Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. There's one who has perfect righteousness that's been manifested to us. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, here's the righteousness. Verse 22, the promised righteousness through Christ. Look at what the text says. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith. This perfect righteousness in obedience to the law that silences us and shows that we're sinners, this righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for a Jew or for a Gentile, all who believe in this promised Christ receive a righteousness apart from works. Verse 22 continues, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned, and have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, the object of, of God's divine wrath, the one who removes the wrath that is rightfully ours. That's what the word propitiation means. By His blood, this perfect sacrifice, to be received by faith. Now, I have two more texts from Romans to flush this out. And if you look at Romans 5, verse 20 to 21, again, we see the law. It has this restraining function. Look at what the law does in Romans 5, verse 20. Now, the law came, it came in for this purpose to increase the trespass. That's what Paul's saying in Galatians. The law came to increase our trespass to show us as sinners but where sin increased grace abounded all the more S richard sid says there's more mercy in christ than sin in us that when we see the the 
condemnation of the law that is rightfully ours and it's increased to the nth degree, well, it shows us that where sin abounds or sin increases, grace, it abounds all the more. There's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And then one more text to wrap up Romans in chapter 7, verse 7 and 8. Paul, he gives us a final, final point on the law here. Romans 7, verse 7 to 8. Why then the law? Verse 7 of Romans 7. What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Well, I hope we have enough evidence to see why God gave the Mosaic law in its original historic context for the people of Israel. 430 years after the promise, it was given to show them their sinfulness and drive them to Christ, who alone could fulfill the law's demands. Now, Paul's going to give us two more aspects back in Galatians 3. Not only did it increase transgression, show our sinfulness, but it also imprisoned, and it held sinners captive. Look at Galatians 3, verse 21. Here's another purpose for the Mosaic Law. Verse 21 of Galatians 3. Here's a question, an honest question. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? You can see the, the logical conclusion. If, if the law is to increase our transgression, well, well, is it functioning in a way that's contrary to the promise of justification by faith alone in Christ alone? What, is, what does Paul say? He says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Here's Paul's second characteristic of the law it, it it imprisons sinners it holds them captive and, and paul's given us an idea that the law was never given to the people of israel to bring life it actually brought death and condemnation and slavery and imprisonment and the law was to serve as this mirror in the hearts of of the people of god to to show them their vileness and i'll give you a few texts from other passages of Scripture that show the, the, the slavery of the law or this imprisonment that the law brings. If you jot this down, you don't have to turn there, but 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, Paul says the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. The law has this ministry of a prison-like ministry to, to kill the sinner in that sense, to, to hold them captive and, and without an excuse before God. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7 says that the law is the ministry of death. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 9 says that it is a ministry of condemnation. I believe that's what Paul's saying when he talks about the law 
in Galatians 3, verse 21 to 23, as imprisoning sinners under sin and holding them captive. He's saying that it never could bring life. Even, even the, the most righteous so-called Jew could never find life by obedience to the law. All that it did was brought death to them and brought condemnation to them. Martin Luther wrote in his commentary that the law, it brings death and sin and wrath to light. That's what Paul's saying. It puts you in that, that dark prison cell. And all the light that's shining in there is just sin and death and wrath. Luther goes on, but the gospel, it brings the good news of salvation through Christ alone to light. You see what Paul's saying here, that the law and the promised gospel, they're not working contrary to one another. They have two different functions. The gospel of Jesus Christ alone saves you from sin and from wrath to come. But what's the function of the law? It shows you our death, our spiritual depravity, and they work in harmony to bankrupt us, or show us our spiritual bankruptcy, rather, in our emptiness, and then it, it drives us to this one to come. Uh, another quote by a Scottish Presbyterian. He writes that the best preparation for the study of the gospel is neither great intellect or scholastic study, but it is an awareness of our actual condition as sinners in the sight of God. John Bunyan, speaking about the law, said, Run, John, run, the law commands. But it gives us neither feet nor hands. You, you look at every command in, under the law, and it's as if the law of God is saying, Run, do, do this and live. Fulfill this perfectly and you shall live. Run, run, John, run, the law commands. But it gives us neither feet nor hands. We're in prison. We're called to do all these things, but we have no feet to walk and no hands to, to move and no eyes to see. That's what Paul's saying the law does. It imprisons us. We're, we're, we can't fulfill these laws and the demands. Bunya concludes, But far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and it gives us wings. You see the two different functions. The law, run, John, run but I'm giving you no hands to actually run, and so you're going to stand condemned in death. But the promised gospel, it bids you fly, and it gives you wings. God, by His Spirit, he, he gives you a command, and then He actually upholds you to have both the will and the desire and the ability to fulfill that command. That's what John Bunyan is getting at. The law, it's, Increases transgression, it imprisons sinners, left empty-handed, who shall save me? And then third, if you look in Galatians 3, verse 24 and verse to 26, Paul concludes, the law is a guardian. And the Mosaic law here in particular, he's speaking about uh, to the Jewish people, was a guardian. Look at verse 24, so then... Galatians 3.24, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, the promised one, we are no longer under a guardian. It's important to understand that word guardian, pedagogy. You get that word there, a teacher or a babysitter. 
Now, some commentators would suggest Paul's saying that the, the Mosaic law was like this babysitter until Christ came. The Mosaic law had this, this pedagogy, this, this teaching ministry that showed you what is, what is good, what God demands, what he hates. It shows the, our state before God. It's like this babysitter saying that, that you've broken the law and I'm here to, to push you forward to the one, to drive you to someone who can, who can save you from your predicament, from your destruction. That's what Paul's getting at. The, the babysitter, this Mosaic law, was this, this guardian for the people of Israel until the promised Christ came. And we saw last week, look at verse 4 of chapter 4. Here is when the guardian, this, this babysitter, was no longer needed. Verse 4 of Galatians 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, the promised one, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem, to save, to buy back those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It's received by faith. That's what the law did. It was this great teacher that emptied us and pointed us to the one to be received by faith. It drove us, verse 24, this guardian that drove us in order that we might be justified by faith. I'll have you flip back one more time to Romans. In Romans 8, I want you to see here in the New Covenant, Romans 8, verse 1, you think of all that the law was given for to increase sin, to, to enslave us in death and condemnation. Well, Paul's saying that the guardian, the law, it had a greater purpose to not leave you in that state, but to leave you and lead you to the hands of Christ where this promise is given. Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. The law says condemnation, but the law also says that you will not be condemned if you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who receive this Christ, well, there's no condemnation. The condemnation of the law, both for the Jew under the Mosaic law and for the Gentile under the moral law written on our heart that shows us we're accountable to God, if we're in this Christ, there's no more condemnation. How do we know that? Well, look at verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. You were, you were imprisoned under the law, but the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. It gave you wings to fly. It set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. How did he do that? Verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law could not save us. Here's what God did, something that the law could not do. What did he do? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
what is, what is Paul saying? How, how have we received no condemnation in Jesus Christ? Well, the, the law, you could look at, it at the moral law or the Mosaic law in its entirety, there were stipulations. If you were obedient to the covenant, well, there would be covenant blessings. There would be the promise of, of all these blessings from God. But if you failed in one degree, it led to condemnation. And what that pointed forward to was the greatest condemnation in eternity under God's wrath. And what Paul's saying that Christ came to do, well, he secured the covenant blessings for us by perfect obedience to the law of God. He, he lived on our behalf. He, he lived in the stead of sinners under that law that imprisoned us and condemned us. And what did he do? He fully, he, he fully completed, he secured that full obedience that the law demands, something that we could never do for the great purpose that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Not because we've done something, but because he has done all for us. And not only has he fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law, but he also fulfilled and satisfied the condemnation of the law so that Paul will, will speak in the book of Romans that God's the just and the justifier of the one who places their faith in Jesus Christ. It wasn't like God just took our sins and our transgressions and our lawlessness and just put it under the rug and, and didn't deal with it. No, he dealt with our sin and the condemnation for our sin, but it fell on our covenant head, Jesus Christ, instead of us. So there was both this full obedience that the law required through Christ, and there was also infinite justice satisfied through Christ. And Paul is saying that is how you're freed in Christ Jesus by His Spirit from this law that increases your transgression and enslaves you. How? Well, it drove you to Christ by being a guardian, a tutor, saying, don't look within, look up, see Jesus Christ, the perfect one, lived on your behalf, dying as your perfect sacrifice. Run to Him. Don't look within. Now, as I wrap things up, we've seen Paul has a threefold use of the Mosaic law. Later in Galatians chapter 5, we'll answer why then the law in the moral sense for the believer. We'll see uh, Paul speaking about walking in accordance with the Spirit and all these things. Why, why then the law for the believer? Well, I think as we wrap things up for us, an implication of knowing the law of God, whether in the Old Covenant or whether the, the law written on our hearts, why that needs to be recovered is because, as Paul said to the Romans, without a knowledge of, of the law, of God's commands, and our accountability to Him, well, we'll have no knowledge of sin. And we live in a day of lawlessness, but men and women don't know the God that they're accountable to. And they don't know what He requires, and they don't know the consequences of their lawlessness. So as many in times past have encouraged the church, when we're dealing with unbelievers, there's that work of, of, of plowing, as it were, with the law, of, of showing men their sinfulness, and it's as a good doctor does. Here's the, the predicament of your soul, your, your body. It's very sick with this disease, but that diagnosis, what does it do? It leads to the remedy. Here's 
here's your state, but here's the remedy, and here's the medicine that will save your body. Well, if you didn't know the state your body's in, you wouldn't embrace that, that remedy. You'll say, I don't need no remedy. I'm, I'm fine on my own. And that's what the law does in our evangelism. If we want people to know why Jesus Christ came and what he accomplished, well, they have to know who God is and who they're accountable to and what they've broken before the courts of heaven. So for us as believers, we need to know this for our evangelism. We want people to know Christ. Well, it's a guardian, the law, to lead them to Christ. But secondly, also, we need to know the, the purpose of the law uh, in the Christian life. John Calvin, I think it's helpful. He has in his institutes, and I hope to unpack this more later on. But he says the law functions as a mirror, even in our, our own Christian life. It shows us what, what is pleasing in God's sight, what, what he desires, what he hates. It also is a restrainer of evil in our day as well. We've lost that. It, it can't change hearts, but it shows uh, men. Uh, it's, it's a restraining effect in society of, of what they ought not to do. And then finally, Calvin says it, it shows again uh, the way to walk, not in, in accordance to earn salvation, but after we've received grace. Calvin says it helps us walk in, in a manner worthy of, of the calling to which we've been called. I'll quote uh, one confession, the 1689, says that though true believers are not under the covenant of works, the covenant of the law, you could say, either to be justified or condemned, the law for the believer is a rule of life that we can better understand the will of God and walk with Christ. J.C. Ryle says you need the whole Bible to be a whole Christian. We'll see that later in Galatians 5. And if you're maybe here this evening, and boys and girls, you're here and saying, why the law? Well, it's a good thing to be convicted of our sin because that conviction is from the Spirit of God. Jesus said that I'll send the Holy Spirit who will convict the world of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. And we see in Galatians 3 that God sends the law and exposes our sin and all our corruption with the intent that it will drive us to Jesus Christ. So if we're growing in a sense of our sin, our acknowledgement of our sin, well, that, that's a gift from God to drive you to Jesus Christ. And I love that quote by Robert Murray McShane. He said, take one look at, at, at sin and self, but take ten looks at Jesus Christ. And I believe that is the emphasis here in Galatians Three, it, Paul's not saying just take nine looks at sin and stay, stay in that prison cell. No, Paul's saying if you see your sin, look to Christ. Look ten times at Christ. Flee to Jesus Christ because that's what the law, law was given for. To not leave you in that state, but to lead you to a state of blessedness with Christ. Received by grace through faith alone. So why the law? Increasing transgression, holding us captive, leading us to the only one that can save us from God's law. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its, its clarity, Lord, that you have not left us uh, on our own and left us in darkness of, of sin and death, but we thank you even for the grace of exposing our sin that we would see our need of Christ and 
even, Lord, as we, we grow as Christians and walk with Christ, we're still mindful of the sin that dwells within us and our need uh, more and more to be conformed into your image and likeness and uh, to do that which pleases you. We, we ask, Lord, in days to come as we think more about uh, the purpose of the law, we ask, Father, that you would help us this week to come to walk uh, in a manner worthy of the gospel, that we would, would live in light of the promised Christ who has done all for us. And, Lord, we pray that that would sustain us and fuel us and help us to walk in obedience to your word in this week to come. And we ask, Lord, if there's any here this evening held captive under the condemnation of the law and aware of their sin, we pray, Lord, that you would drive them to Christ, that even this night they'd have ten looks at the Savior who's done all for sinners. We thank you so much for him and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.